0: Hello and welcome to Writing on the Walls. I'm your host, Rob Lovati. I'm very excited today to be joined by Dr. Melinda Moore from Eastern Kentucky University. Melinda is a pioneer when it comes to suicide assessment and intervention, as well as prevention and response. She is a professor of psychology at EKU. She's also a clinical psychologist and a survivor of suicide loss, among many other things, We cover some serious ground on this episode, including the loss of Melinda's then-husband in 1996, how this loss opened her eyes to suicide and changed the course of her career. We talk about the Collaborative Assessment and Management of Suicidality, or CAMS tool, which we talked about on our episode with Dr. Stephen O'Connor from the National Institute of Mental Health. We talk about the concept of post-traumatic growth and how one can work toward it after enduring a tragedy. We also talk about the work that she has done with the veteran population, and finally, the work that she's doing around the intersection of faith and suicidality. One thing I wanted to throw out there, with us still being a new and developing podcast, if you haven't already, it would be incredibly helpful if you could leave us a review or rating on your platform of choice. I really enjoyed speaking with Melinda today, and I think you will enjoy hearing it. And with that, let's get into it. Today's episode is brought to you by CNC Resourcing. Dana at CNC provides one-on-one business coaching, customized training seminars, as well as continuing education around creating safe spaces for transgender and gender non-binary folks. Dana is actually who I use as my business coach, and I would recommend her to anybody who's looking for some help jumpstarting their business, or just looking for some pointed tips on how to take their business to the next step. You can check them out at ccresourcing.us, or check out the link in our show notes. Hey, Melinda, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for joining me today. Really appreciate it.
1: Oh, absolutely. I'm so thrilled to be here.
0: I'm thrilled to pick your brain a little bit. I think there's a lot that you focus on in your professional life that is pretty core to some of the areas that I have found myself interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, Before we get too deep into that, People are probably sick of hearing me say it, but there's a question I like to start with mm-hmm. um, and understanding that in, in addition to uh, focusing in areas surrounding suicide and your professional work, you're also a survivor of suicide loss. Mm-hmm. Regarding the loss of your husband in, in 1996, I'm mm-hmm. wondering if you could share with us what is the most important thing or some of the most important things that you learned either from him while he was here mm-hmm. or from losing him to suicide?
1: Oh gosh, that's that's a <laughs> that's a big question. I think I continue to learn things. I mean, uh, I think at the time, I did not realize this was very much a temporary relationship. Um, and then and then after his death, I think, you know, it it was obviously it was meant to be, but then in a sense it wasn't meant to be long term. And but I think it taught me, and he taught me that even if things are not meant to be long-term, they're still important throughout every part of your life. And so he will always be an important part of my life. And I'm sorry I'm getting emotional talking about this, but he will always be important to me.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. It's, it's got to be interesting and amazing to see your grief evolve over time. Yeah. Um, and I guess now it's coming up on three decades, if my if my math is right yeah um, in the next few years yeah. I'm wondering if you could walk us through what that process has been like for you um understanding that some of our listeners are survivors of loss in their early stages i'm definitely curious to hear about what that immediate aftermath was like for you um, but also curious to hear how that has shifted to where you find yourself today
1: yeah you know rob obviously it's still very real to me i mean it's still very present Um, And I think my work helps me stay connected to my feelings still ongoing, processing feelings of grief, but also the importance uh, that he has had in opening my eyes and opening this new avenue for really impacting people, other people in a significant way. I would have to say that, you know, um, uh, my loss was probably the most painful thing I've ever experienced in my life. And I have experienced some pretty painful childhood uh, things. I, very difficult, chaotic family, and then uh, the death of my father, and then some other relationship issues that were incredibly painful. But I would have to say Connor's death was the most painful thing that ever happened to me, not just emotionally, but physically. I mean, it was felt pain. So I think that is something that a, a lot of clinicians don't really understand uh, unless they've experienced it themselves or have just had so many experiences with people that have had this kind of traumatic loss in their life that they, they get it, that it's a, it's very much a felt pain, not just emotional, but it, you feel it in the body as well. And, um and it's so traumatic and people around us have no idea what to say or what to do. They either avoid or they're intrusive. I mean, it, it is no real happy medium. There aren't, there still aren't uh, real good little literature or books out there helping people understand, you know, what do you say in the aftermath of these events, or how to help people really in the aftermath of these events, teach other people how to treat them, you know. So I think that um, I learned very early. Uh, you know, that number one, you can survive it. Um, I certainly survived it, but it took a lot of work. And so I have a tremendous amount of compassion and respect and empathy for the people I work with currently who are suicide bereaved, uh, knowing knowing the path that they're walking.
0: Very, very well said. You, you talked about this felt sense in the body, which... Uh, admittedly for me is not my strong suit Um, i often feel very disconnected from that felt somatic experience and it's something i've been doing a lot of work to focus on is where do i feel this what does it feel like and i find that a lot of us really just don't have the vernacular to even explain what a feeling feels like in the body Mm -hmm. i'm wondering what your experience was like with that and what advice you would have for people to lean into those feelings more, learn how to describe them and learn how to share them with other people.
1: Wow. Um yeah, I mean I think we have the range of experiences in the aftermath of these traumatic losses. And suicide is such a traumatic event. You're going to have a you know a broad range of responses. And some people you know, like myself, were incredibly emotionally devastated and physically felt pain. And then other people, you know, are going to feel somewhat, like you said, disconnected or maybe numb. And I think that is, you know, that's also a traumatic response. Um, That's a a traumatic um, part of the trauma. Part of, you know, a lot of, we know that a lot of suicide bereaved people meet criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder that would certainly be one of the symptoms. Um, and so I think that working, uh, if you could find, if you've had this experience of loss, working with a professional who understands trauma, not just grief, but trauma, mm-hmm. and, and, and might even have some experience with suicide loss themselves, and then working or, or, or being part of a community of support of people who also understand this experience of loss. I mean, we're all going to respond differently. But I think being gentle with ourselves, being compassionate, being intentional, one of the things that I tell all the people that I work with, my patients, I I tell them, you know, during this period of time in the immediate aftermath, it's really important to be intentional about everything you do, whether it's eating, sleeping, exercise, you know, not overdoing it. Um, This may sound kind of I don't know, kind of rudimentary, but I think it's also part of a way of getting you to a place where you can kind of be stabilized so that you can begin to really process what's happened to you. And, and I don't, you know, Rob in this country and elsewhere, you know, people get three days off bereavement leave or you know, two weeks or whatever. Some people take FMLA, some people, you know, they're able to do that. But it doesn't matter how much time you take off. This is probably going to be something you're going to process for years after, like I am very much, you know. Um, and so I think it's important from the very beginning to give yourself permission to just stop and be and be intentional um, uh, about your experience and getting yourself to a place where you can then begin to like understand it, learn about it, think about it and continue to process it.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I like that notion of the work never really being done or the experience never being through. Um, one of the first episodes we did was with Dr. David Shredway and his mother died by suicide 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. And he was sharing just how connected he still feels to those emotions that happened 50 years ago. And I, I guess that was a little surprising to me um, being only five and a half years into to my journey of losing my father. Um, it was something I guess I hoped <laughs> deep down was that the, some of these feelings are going to go away over time. And that doesn't appear to be the case. It seems that our relationship with those feelings maybe changes. I, I'd like to talk about kind of two things that you mentioned and then, and then go back to something. You, you talked about the importance of community, um, being around people who understand what it's like, what you're going through. And I've said this on other episodes, but I think it's, it's an important point for me. It's been really important to find that community of people that are outside of my specific loss. You know, Thanks. like I, I talk to my family about losing my dad. I, I am able to talk to my friends about it, people who knew my father. Uh, but there's something powerful about being able to step outside of my specific situation and relate it to people who have lost as well. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on why that is, why it is so powerful and important to be able to step outside of self and and relate our experiences to others.
1: Yeah, well, this kind of is related to my work on post-traumatic growth, my research on post-traumatic growth. What we have found is that when you are able to take your loss and you're at a place where you're, you're more stable than maybe you were in just the immediate aftermath again, You've you've done some you know done some healing, but you're still processing as you will for years and years to come. Um, but you're able to then use that to make meaning in a sense by helping other people, connecting with other people, supporting them, maybe mentoring them. You know this is where you know the the peer support model, such as the peer support model at organizations like TAPS, the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors or the peer support models that are you know in the VAs all over the place you know the veterans hospitals or other places i mean they're so powerful because you can be somebody who has been traumatized wounded and then you are helping and maybe even helping to heal other people you do become that wounded healer that you know, we see in the Bible and we hear about in popular culture everywhere. So I think that's why it's so powerful connecting with other people. And if we can connect with people maybe who have had similar losses or just have had losses and help them, you know, it kind of reaffirms for us, you know, that, you know, yes, you know, we, we, I, I think, you know, that we can do something, make meaning, make, make purpose out of our own losses. And that's incredibly powerful and healing.
0: Yeah, that, that ties in with, with something we I find we talk about almost in every episode, which I'm I have some questions about later, which is how to find purpose through something that seems senseless and tragic, like losing a loved one to suicide. But first, if, if it feels good for you to kind of round out our conversation around the emotional component of bereaving a suicide loss. I'm wondering if it would feel comfortable and safe for you, to kind of walk us through what it was like finding out that your husband had died by suicide and what some of the immediate emotions that showed up for you were.
1: Yeah. Well, um, so I actually, you know, I write about this in um, the latest book that Rabbi Daniel Roberts and I edited it's called after the suicide funeral wisdom on the path to post-traumatic growth. I really walk, you know, the reader through this episode because it was um, incredibly traumatic. It was also something that wasn't a complete surprise to me. We were newly married. We were only married eight months. Um and there were there were things uh we were a you know very natural kind of coming together. I was working um on returning to school. Connor was getting his, his PhD at the Ohio State University in chemistry. I was working in public health and planning on returning. So we were gonna kind of switch roles at some point in time. I met him when I was studying chemistry and needed a tutor, actually hired him as my tutor. And so, um, it was a very natural kind of relationship, but when uh, we were married and then things started to happen in our marriage that were, I would say, not usual for a, you know, a young couple in their twenties. Um, I would say that, you know, I had some concerns, but I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, planning on leaving or it was they were just they were just problems to solve in a young and early marriage. and um and we were very much, you know, de- I think devoted and committed and loved each other. I was a new Catholic. um I had been, i say taken taken by siege by God the previous year. Uh, had definitely sort of a, a, an epiphany, a spiritual epiphany and became a Catholic. And then I met him and he was from Ireland and he was what we call a collapsed Catholic. He had kind of lost his faith and we kind of came together around this and really enjoyed going to mass together. And so this was um, when when he killed himself, it was on one hand a shock, but on another hand, I feel almost like it wasn't a shock. Like there was something that I couldn't put my finger on that was wrong. And I later realized that, you know, he had brought a lot of pain and suffering and and childhood trauma with him to the United States. And so I think that's what, what then made sense to me. And so he, um, um, I was working that morning. It was a sunny Wednesday morning in May, late May. And, um, uh, I just received, uh, I kept getting paged by a homicide detective uh, at, with the Columbus Police Department. And I was actually, had had some leave time and went to school that morning and I was in a class. I kept getting paged by this homicide detective, didn't understand what he wanted me to do. Finally, I called my voicemail at the time and he just said, Melinda, come home. And so I drove home with, strangely enough, some fear that something that Connor had had maybe done something to himself. And I got home and uh, there were police and fire trucks all over our townhouse. We had a detached garage and um, he um, had died in the garage. Uh, and I when I when I dr- walked into the house and then through the townhouse to back to the garage, I remember a firefighter uh, running up to me and saying and just look the look on his face. And I just said you know, kind of hope beyond hope. I said, is he still alive? And I just, the look on his face told me what I needed to know. And, you know, the fight or flight response kicked right in. And I turned right around and ran back into my townhouse and the homicide detective who had been calling my phone came in. And he said, the first thing he said to me was my father killed himself too. Hmm. And so, you know, that was at one, uh, you know, that, that told me what happened that Connor had killed himself Uh, but then he was gone uh but there was also something strangely comforting in knowing i wasn't completely alone in that moment and um and so that was a shocking experience he died from self-immolation which is uh, a very odd uh way to die frankly um Uh, and he was in his car in the garage, in the detached garage. And so one of our neighbors had called the fire department thinking our garage was on fire. And of course, when the firefighters got there, they realized there was a body inside the car inside the garage. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was shocking. Uh, It was incredibly, uh, I did not even, I could not even make sense of any of that. I called my uh, aunt and uncle who are sort of my surrogate parents uh, they lived in Columbus. My uncle was, was a retired uh, clinical psychologist, and they came down immediately, and were you know comforting me, but also helping me kind of just keep, get my sea legs because I didn't, I couldn't. I mean, I couldn't make sense of what was happening. And then my uncle had to call Connor's mother in Ireland to tell her what happened, which was incredibly painful knowing. So it was at first very shocking and. Um, how violent, because uh, the death was, he was a very gentle intellectual kind of guy. And so for him to die of self-immolation, which is a a very violent, almost a political protest. And later it made sense to me why he did what he did. It was definitely a meaningful uh, means. Um, But I would say that that was then replaced with a lot of concern about what was going to be written in the paper the next day because I then later realized that there was a reporter going around talking to all my neighbors and a friend of mine who was an editorial page writer for the Columbus Dispatch told me that there was going to be a big news piece in the newspaper and I think he may have squashed it to a smaller piece but it was still there and it was very embarrassing very embarrassing because they they interviewed my neighbors and my neighbors of course had no idea and of course what we know from research is that usually people blame because it's men who die by suicide more frequently than women they oftentimes blame the spouse they said well something must have been wrong in the marriage well there was nothing wrong it was just that things had come to a head around our our problems and he he could not talk about it. Mm. And he wasn't gonna talk about the trauma he brought with him from Ireland. And so there was, he had no other choice but to kill himself. And I now understand that, but it took me years to kind of unravel that and to figure that out.
0: Mm. Thank you for sharing that with me first and foremost. I I find it's it's comforting in a weird way to hear about these specific instances, you know, the the Mm -hmm. event itself and the immediate aftermath because it's something that is incredibly traumatic. Um, It's something I still have a hard time processing sometimes. And to be able to hear about that experience uh, that another person has gone through, I think that's just what brings me comfort in knowing that, like you said, in in the detective sharing with you, it's that feeling of, okay, I'm not alone. If this person has gotten through it, then I know I can get through it as well. And I, I like what you said about realizing that Connor had no other options. That's that's a hard, uh, hard thing to accept. And I feel like when we first lose someone to suicide, we come up with a whole list of options that they had. You know, mm-hmm. why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do this? And what's happened with me over time is realizing that none of those were a viable option for my dad. Um, he had one option that made sense and that's the option that he took. Mm-hmm. I want to shift gears a little bit and maybe talk about how this event changed the course of where you were. You said you were working in public health at the time, and now you find yourself as a professor at Eastern Kentucky University, a Mm -hmm. clinical psychologist. And I'm wondering about that shift and how much of a role the the event of losing your husband played in that.
1: Oh, I think it played, uh, it was the pivotal role. Um, I was planning on returning to school, as I said earlier. Really wanted to uh, study medicine, maybe, or um, that was really my goal. Um, but I knew I wanted to be on the clinical end of healthcare. I was on the policy end of healthcare, working. I was working as a speechwriter, did a lot of policy work at the Ohio Department of Health at the time, and loved healthcare. But I really wanted to be on the clinical end. Didn't know where I was going to be fitting, and loved primary care, loved that kind of thing. But then. When this happened, this was um, a punch—I would have to say a punch in the gut. Uh, the, all the wind was knocked right out of me, and I really did not have an interest in medicine anymore. It almost happened almost overnight. I didn't quite know where I fit in mm. clinically, so I just made the decision, which was a very not a not a popular decision in my family because they just wanted me to get on with it, get on with my life, move forward kind of forget about this kind of thing. And I said, "Mm, no, I I have to sit and be for a while and figure out what's happened to me. And that's what I did. I took some time, uh, you know, my my doctor, my therapist, my friends, my family could not talk with me about this, you know, and I did not find that community of support for a number of years, frankly. It was the dark ages of suicide prevention. You know, we didn't really have these suicide support groups. I went to one (laughs) once and it was a, It was me and then this couple that had lost their child. And basically they spent the whole hour or whatever talking about their child. And I understood that, but it wasn't a real support group. And so I just kind of processed this on my own and read a lot about suffering and really um, instead of, I think, instead of being angry with God, I looked for questions in my walk of faith that would help me understand this horrible event within the context of my faith. And then I realized that there was a, there were a lot of experiences everywhere and it wasn't, it, it, you know, and railing at God might be part of that, but it wasn't, you know, God, um, God didn't cause this, you know, he, this wasn't part of his plan. This wasn't, you know, he didn't need another angel necessarily, you know, all these ridiculous things that people tell us in the aftermath of our losses. So it made me really start thinking about suicide. Like, why would somebody do this? And so I began studying suicidology and realized in, in public health, we weren't talking about suicide prevention at all. It was interesting. Everyone around me didn't want to talk about it. But I worked in a building with, you know, I don't know, like 1500 people or whatever. And the epidemiologists who crunched all the numbers around death, morbidity and mortality in Ohio they would talk with me about it because they saw the numbers every single solitary day and they were concerned about it. So I made a lot of friends in the sort of the epidemiology realm that would talk with me. And I realized that there was a lot of work that needed to be done in suicide prevention, talking about it, addressing the stigma. But then also, how do, how do we help these people who are in crisis? How do we think about it? How do we help them? And that really shifted after about two years, shifted my focus towards suicide prevention and I got involved in suicide prevention, and I founded a grassroots organization in Ohio called the Ohio Coalition for Suicide Prevention. And we did some very, you know, like rudimentary kind of uh, events in Ohio. And then 9/11 struck, and it was impossible to fund it. So I ended up leaving Ohio and working. Just fell into a job in uh, at a national suicide prevention organization. And then ended up meeting Dr. David Jobs at Catholic University of America. Who he's a clinical psychologist. He's a clinical. He developed uh, the collaborative assessment and management of suicidality. He was he's a he's a suicide researcher, very well known suicide assessment uh, person. And uh, I was lucky enough to be able to go and study with him. And so that really changed the trajectory of my career. Uh, and it was all very natural, Rob. It was as if one thing was building on another. My professional experience was building on my personal experiences. And um, I don't think I could have possibly engineered that myself. And so in that sense, you know, while there were a lot of questions around my faith at that time, uh, my faith actually became the only thing that I could rely upon at that time. Because like I said, no one wanted to talk to me. So I did a lot of grieving in church and mass doing a lot of wrestling with the issue of suffering, reading Mother Teresa and all sorts of writers around this topic. Um, but then ultimately it was the, it was the pivot towards suicide prevention that led me to clinical suicidology.
0: Wow. That's, that's quite the journey. I appreciate you sharing that. Sure. Uh, um, you, you mentioned, you know, being in what you called the dark ages of, of, of suicide when you lost Connor and I'm wondering if then you would say that we are now in the light or is it just a little less dark? What what progress do you think we've made and where do you think we still need to grow uh, as as a field?
1: Oh my gosh, what a huge question. Um, so I my uh, undergraduate degree is in medieval and Renaissance studies, <laughs> so, which prepared me of course for suicidology, which is why I had to get a master's degree in, in psychology before I could enter a PhD program. Um, uh, so I would say we are we are we are embarking upon a renaissance <laughs> now, of sorts. You know, we've we have been enlightened. We recognize there is a connection that you know uh, suicide is not a mystery. There are there are many roads to Rome. Many reasons why people become suicidal. There are biological underpinnings. There are uh, environmental factors. There are you know all sorts of psychological. You know reasons, modeling effects. You know, um, and so lots of reasons why people become suicidal. And then, of course, you know, which is very compelling. And can, of course, I I completely identify with this. Uh, you know, a number of years ago, there were senators like Pete Domenici and Ted Kennedy and um, and Gordon Smith, who uh, you know, uh, you know, and then of course this, you know, the senator from Nevada, Harry Reid. You know, they all talked about their losses of suicide on the Senate floor or advocated for mental health funding. And eventually uh, uh, there was funding for suicide prevention. There was, I think, the first thing that was funded, Ted Kennedy made possible about $3 million for a national suicide hotline, 1-800-SUICIDE. I actually worked for the administrative offices of 1-800-SUICIDE. And then, of course, yeah, so the... uh, the you know, and I think with the wars in the Middle East, you know that and, and the deaths of the military, the increase in suicide deaths in the military, that also then increased funding. So we're in something of a renaissance. Um, don't think we're there yet uh, in terms of right where we need to be. Um, I would say that we've got you know we've got three empirically supported approaches to treating suicide. We've got dialectical behavior therapy. We've got cognitive you know various forms of cognitive behavioral therapy for suicide prevention, and then brief models of CBT and then we've got CAMs, which is really a treatment framework. Um, but I think what we really need to be doing is training clinicians how to assess and then how to intervene, how to think about suicide, how to understand it. That's where we're still caught in the dark ages. Uh, the people that are seeing, the preponderance of suicidal people like nurses, but then also mental health people as well. They need training to understand how to respond. Um, I think there's too much of a knee jerk in this country to just hospitalize or treat people with psychotropics, and that's going to take care of the suicidal behavior. And that is just absolutely not good enough. And it's really, I mean, that's not effective. It's the standard of care in this country, but it's not good enough and it's not effective. And so One of the things that I'm doing at my job is I'm training clinicians how to think about suicide and then how to treat it when it happens, and then how to take care of the families and the other loved ones who are left behind in the aftermath of suicide. So I actually have a semester long class in our doctoral program at Eastern Kentucky University called Understanding Suicide from Assessment to Intervention and Management. And I think that's where the field needs to be going. We need to have clinicians who understand how to, how to assess it and then treat it.
0: You are speaking my language and, and I love that approach because you are focusing on what I see as the three pillars when, when dealing with suicide as an issue, which is the prevention piece, which I think that's where a lot of the focus has gone in the last 15 years. But then there's also the intervention piece, which I wanna spend some time talking about specifically with your work around CAMs. Yeah. And then the piece that I find has maybe been left behind a little bit, and it is still kind of slowly developing, which is the postvention piece, which I want to get into a little bit later with you. But uh, pulling on the the interve- intervention space, I, I know that like you mentioned, you you worked and studied specifically around the CAMS tool, which is the uh, uh, Collaborative Assessment and Management of Suicidality. It's an assessment tool that has become kind of commonplace in terms of how it's used in assessing and intervening with, with a patient who is presenting uh, suicidal ideation. I'm wondering if you could, we, we uh, met with Stephen O'Connor, as I mentioned, and he talked to us about the model and how it's implemented. I'm curious if, if you would have anything to add and if you could tell us about the process of training clinicians and graduate students to understand the model and be able to implement it.
1: Yeah. So I mean, I I think you probably talked to one of the best people you could talk to about the model, about the CAMS model. You know, CAM the CAMS model, the collaborative assessment and management of suicidality is a um, it's got a central assessment tool called the suicide status form, where which we we use almost immediately. I mean, when we're introducing CAMS, we say, Hey, you know, you're suicidal, um, or you're having suicidal thoughts. In our case, in our clinic, we even we use it with individuals who are engaging in non-suicidal self-injury. Um, and there's a you know, kind of controversial, but in our in our you know, sort of way of thinking, there are a lot of individuals who are engaging in self-harm behaviors, whether it's either their suicidality is either latent or it's at the very, very least, suicidal self-injury is a maladaptive form of coping. And so if there ever becomes that suicide intent, like they become suicidal, like consciously aware of their suicidality, they have an immediate practice to go to. And it, they could very, very easily you know, cut themselves too deeply and then accidentally kill themselves. So, so we treat that along the continuum of suicidal, you know, suicide, suicidal behavior, uh, ideation and behavior. And so what happens whenever somebody is presenting to us either in crisis or in our clinic at, at EKU or even in my private practice um they'll present and either maybe they'll be we'll be doing an assessment on them like some sort of you know learning disability assessment or we'll give them the Mmpi and we'll realize that you know that they're suicidal or they come in in crisis or as a part of their treatment they're suicidal So I've had people come into my private practice before who were, I was doing trauma-focused work and they would get suicidal. So I would stop the trauma-focused work and I would immediately engage the CAMS treatment framework. And the CAMS treatment frameworks allows us to be very direct about this sort of collaborative aspect. Hey, do you mind if I pull a chair and sit beside you so we can try to understand how you're becoming suicidal together? And so we really investigate this together. And then we develop an understanding of how they're becoming suicidal based upon this central assessment tool. And then we we are targeting and treating what we call drivers. So the drivers of their suicidality. Everybody's different. There are different reasons why different, you know, various people become suicidal. So, so we really have to address those drivers, uh, the, the things that are making them suicidal, but then we also have to teach them new ways of coping between sessions. And that's really what keeps them out of the hospital this this new way of coping, what we call the stabilization plan. And embedded in the stabilization plan is also this issue of being very explicit about mean safety. So we have to do something to address the means that you're thinking about using. I just can't let you go home to an arsenal of weapons, which is what happens in Kentucky frequently. People have an arsenal of weapons because it's a hunting culture here in Kentucky. And so we do all of that. Uh, in that first session, and then we continue to monitor the their suicidal. We take their temperature with each session. So, you know, while they might have come in being very reticent to talk about being suicidal, a lot of times people know that, you know, they can be threatened with hospital involuntary hospitalization because again, that's part of our knee jerk in this culture and 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 the people's training just to put people in the hospital who are suicidal or who utter the the word suicide or to just immediately send them to a prescriber. So instead of doing that, we sit and we listen to them and then we do this assessment. And then from session to session, we're taking their temperature on their suicidality, but then we're continuing um, to address the drivers, what's driving their suicidality until their suicidality is resolved. And um, this is an incredibly reinforcing experience for a clinician because it takes all the mystery out of you know being suicidal or what do you do? There's never any questions about what you do next when you're CAMS trained. You know exactly what you're doing from session to session and sort of how the, this process goes. And so, so what I do is I, I train clinicians all over the world in CAMS. I'm a senior consultant for the CAMS Care uh, Company, uh, which is a training company that disseminates CAMS and was founded by Dr. David Jobes and, and his and his wife, Colleen Kelly, and his partner, Andrew Evans, and other people in his lab, like Dr. Jennifer Crumlish and Dr. Stephen O'Connor, and all these people that really helped, you know, create CAMs. Um, and uh, I train clinicians all over the world. I do these one-day role, tra- role play trainings. But then with my students, I, I start off, uh, sometimes I have to train them on the spot if they've got a suicidal person in the clinic uh you know that they're doing an assessment on oftentimes i'll 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 sort of stop we'll stop what they're doing and then somebody'll go in and do a first session of cams while i train them and then they come back in and and then they um they do cams with that particular client but m- usually what happens is in the second semester of their of their second year, the spring semester, I, I embed it in a semester-long class. And so we're talking about suicide from day one. We're talking about their experiences with suicide, what they bring to the table as a clinician. We are examining their, their beliefs and some of the myths and maybe the misinformation that they still hold about suicide. And then we we go through epidemiology and theory. They understand and learn about the latest theory. And then we actually start training, doing the, the clinical skill training. And that's where CAMS comes in. And I take a number of weeks to show them video. We we read Dr. Dave, David Jobs' book, um, Man, You Know, Suicide, managing suicidal risk, a collaborative approach. Um, we read a, a bunch of other things around DBT. They they get DBT trained within our program, but then also CBT. So they know all the range of of treatments that are available. We really focus on this treatment framework, CAMS. And so then we do a lot of role-playing in class. We watch a lot of videos of Dr. Jobs doing CAMS with uh, various people. And and then they get to take their training wheels off in our in our psychology clinic, our training clinic. And so that's really where then under close supervision from me, they begin to treat suicidal people in our clinic. And I will tell you in the, I don't know, five or six years that we've been doing this, we have saved a lot of lives. And during the pandemic, we have saved a lot of lives. And what's interesting, we had to go from being uh, an all in-person clinic where we were doing Suicide focused treatment face to face. We had to, during when the pandemic basically shut our university down, we had to go to an all virtual clinic. And so we are currently now doing face to face CAMS as well as still virtual CAMS. But for several years, we were doing, you know, we were providing suicide focused treatment delivered by graduate students in a virtual format. And we saved a lot of lives in that time period. So um, I know it works. Uh, and Uh, I also know that we can, you can train graduate students to um, treat suicidal people. You know, Marshall Linehan, who developed dialectical behavior therapy, has famously said that too many graduate programs fragilize graduate students by not allowing them to treat suicidal people. And I think that's really has, that's more a product of the stigma around suicide and the fear around suicide that you know that a lot of clinicians have and people, you know, directors of training programs have. And what we have proven is that, you know, using you, you're you we're gonna still have people die by suicide in our culture. And clinicians who are working with high risk people are gonna have people attempt and possibly die. But um, we can uh, we can train smart graduate students to treat these folks and then get out in clinical practice and then treat them as a part of their clinical practice when they're out in the world. And then hopefully someday change this, this uh, lack of clinical uh, expertise in treating suicide.
0: That, that's that's excellent. And I just wanna express how grateful I am for, for the work that you do. Um, it's It's obvious that it's impactful and making a difference and is the start of this new wave of really making sure that our clinicians are trained to manage this. And okay. I think in hearing you talk about CAMS and hearing Dr. O'Connor talk about CAMS, it seems like the, the key and what makes it work is the collaborative approach, um, which I have some lived experience around suicidal intensity. And that was not my experience at all. I, I mm. sure wish that something like CAMS had been implemented mm. to help me navigate that. I found that it was kind of in the dark. And, and once I brought up the word suicide, uh, the idea of hospitalization and medication, just as you described, was really the only the only avenue. And you mentioned that it's not helpful. I would contend, based on my experience, it was actually harmful to to go into a hospital on no medications and come out on eight or nine different psychotropic meds, not being able to make heads or tails of what is a symptom, what is a side effect. Um, it, it took it took quite some time to be able to unwind that and try to get back to baseline after that experience. Um, so I am really glad to hear about tools like CAMS. I'm, I'm wondering if you could walk us through what makes it an evidence-based approach that works compared to maybe some of the other uh, assessment tools that are out there.
1: Yeah, so the thing is, it's not just an assessment tool, it's assessment heavy. And uh, and there's a, uh, you know, it would almost take a training for me to explain, you know, the whole thing to you, but we are, we are, it's, it's a, a unique assessment tool that really tries to understand how an individual becomes suicidal, not based upon sort of a distillation of a gazillion risk factors, which is a lot, what a lot of assessment tools do, but really looking through the lens of very well-researched um, uh, assessment questions. So mm-hmm. for instance, reasons for living, reasons for dying, or um, what we call the core assessment which is a combination of something called um, the Cubic Model, which is a very well-researched assessment um, uh, tool developed by Dr. Uh, Edwin Schneidman, who really founded the modern-day study of suicide uh, and uh, the Cubic Model, which includes questions around psychological pain, stress and agitation, and then, of course, the very famous question around how hopeless are you, which was really comes out of, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Aaron Beck and in cognitive theory. And then, of course, the self-hate question, which is comes out of, you know, escape theory, which is an idea that was proffered by um, uh, Dr. Roy Baumeister. Uh, And so we're looking at these very well researched uh, constructs, assessment constructs, and we're putting them all together to try to understand how that individual becomes suicidal. And we ask them, You know, really almost like a, like a, it's like almost like a projective question. You know, if you were to predict how likely it is that you're going to kill yourself someday, what would that number be on a Likert scale from one to five? And so we're almost using, it's like a, it's like a psychodynamic projective question. So all of this together in the core assessment really helps us understand, but from an empathic collaborative perspective. How this individual is becoming suicidal? You know, we're not freaking out and like standing up and saying we got to go to the emergency room. Or this is, you know, no, we're we're curious um, because we recognize and we know certain things now. Because, because of the the new science around suicide, you know, that suicidal people um, are not these fragile, you know, china dolls that are going to fall apart if you touch them. You know, they're ambivalent. They don't necessarily want to die, but they don't want to live in the pain that they're in. And so how we respond is as important as what we say to them. And so I think collaboration is critical and being empathic with the, with what we call the suicidal wish, being empathic with their pain, never endorsing it, but saying, you know what, I think I can help you. But I, in order to do so, I need to know more. So do you mind if I sit next to you and we talk about all of this, these really important questions together to try to unravel what seems to be a mystery? And then let's figure out, you know, what's driving it. And then let's treat those drivers so that you can resolve your suicidality, So you don't have to any longer resort to suicide as a form of coping, because like drinking and drugging, suicide is a form of coping and that's how we conceptualize it it's very much a skill deficit and so we have to teach them skills how to cope with their suicidality between sessions but then also how how to address what the what these drivers are of their suicidality whether it's a relationship or you know identity issues or whether it's you know, maybe a trauma in their life. It could be a psychiatric diagnosis like depression or PTSD. So in that case, we would probably, maybe we would refer to a prescriber for something for the PTSD or the depression, but it's not necessarily. It can be very much a relationship or a job or wanting to go back to school or, you know, self-esteem or, you know, body image or, you know, um, gender identity issues. I mean, all sorts of things, many, many roads to Rome. And so I think, um, it's, it's effective because we're getting to the root cause of what is making somebody suicidal. And then we're, we're addressing it. And, um, I, I, I I can't tell you exactly what makes it so effective. Like why in the research? I mean, we just know that, you know, in terms of people no longer using suicide as a form of coping, um, no longer being as hopeless, um, and then addressing, you know, these skill deficits like the self-harm behavior, um, uh, you know, I, I think these are the things that are why it's, you know, at least in a from a research perspective, have been so successful. Um, we have, I think there are about uh, nine randomized clinical trials, uh, if I remember from the latest data. Um, but I will tell you as a clinician, um, you know, I, I know we've got the research literature behind it that ma- that in- indicates that it's effective. But as a clinician, I know it's effective because I've done it multiple times and I've seen mm-hmm. how effective it is. So, and that's really the most important thing to me: does it work?
0: Absolutely, and, and I love the way you framed that conversation. How you would approach it: Hey, I think I can help. In order to do that, there are some things I'd like to talk about with you. Can I sit down next to you, and, and can we work on this together? How how willing do you find that folks with suicidal intensity in that moment are to participate in that? Is it something that almost all the time they're willing to engage and want to talk about it? Um, is it often met with resistance? What what has your experience been?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the thing is, people are coming to you for a reason. I mean, they're if they're not fully aware that they're, you know, uh, suicidal wanting to end their life, or maybe they're just engaging in something, whether it's drinking, drugging or cutting or, you know, or driving their car too fast or taking unnecessary risks, you know, they might have then an awareness. Yeah, I really don't. It'd be okay if I like just didn't wake up tomorrow or I would, I'm going to go out and do something about my suffering. I'm going to, you know, and they might rehearse incredibly dangerous things like, you know, with a gun or a rope or, you know, uh, on a bridge or, you know, and so, you know, again, it's this, this behavior is on a continuum, but people are coming into us or they're being if they're being brought in. Sometimes they're a little less responsive. But I think even in those moments, you know, we we see this over and over and over again. People who want to be rescued. You know they're 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 looking for people to be empathetic with them, and I think that's the that's the most important thing that a clinician can do. But a clinician, in order to really be available and empath- empathic and not scared, I think it's important to address our own experiences of suicide. And so that's what I do almost immediately. I you know I have students uh, reflect upon their own experiences, and then what what kinds of um, maybe misinformation they still hold on to. And so then we try to correct that through the class and from the teaching them sort of how to think about this and then how to be as a clinician in terms of being comfortable talking about ending your life with a patient, you know, not flinching and like, oh my God, you don't want to do that, you know, but saying, okay, so tell me, help me understand how you become suicidal. And, um, and that takes like everything else practice. We're not born with those skills. And, uh, but I think through not a whole lot of training, we can get there. I do this all the time with people and, and people, you know, understand they want to be able to talk about these things with the people that they're working with. And I think people who are in pain, who don't necessarily want to kill themselves, but don't want to live in the pain that they're in, they want to be able to talk about it too, but they have to be in a place, like you said earlier, that's safe to talk about it
0: i i feel like probably one of the best byproducts of a tool like cams is having quantifiable data that you can understand some of the root causes of what leads someone to that place of being suicidal in the first place and at the risk of asking a, a silly question i'm curious based on the research that's been done or based on your own experience you mentioned before maybe some of the acute causes that could lead to someone being suicidal Dissatisfaction uh, this, this in a job, uh, relationship challenges, uh, just general life dissatisfaction versus maybe some of the more um, chronic cases where someone's dealing with some underlying mental health conditions, uh, depression, PTSD, um, generalized anxiety disorder, so on and so forth. I'm wondering what that distribution looks like where when... St- someone is suicidal, it's more because of the acute specific causes in the moment versus something that is more underlying and chronic in nature.
1: Yeah, that's interesting and you know we we've done some research uh, in uh, Dr. Jobs's lab. we've done some research about these sort of uh, types, typology research, you know more the more acute versus the more chronic presentation. I, I, I would say I'm not as familiar with the distribution, but I will say that you, you see both. And oftentimes, um, you know, the more chronic presentation seems to be uh, more of a short-term kind of course of treatment. Uh, You've got, you know, either with medications or with certain changes in their life, they can almost immediately uh, begin to resolve. Whereas with more chronic situations, you know, you've got underlying, you know, psychiatric issues, more complex psychiatric picture, maybe some psychosis. You know, we've we we know lots of people who are living with chronic, uh, sort of mild, you know, very mild suicidal ideation. Where they will have that uh, throughout their lives, and so just learning to manage that, learning um, whether it's through you know medication or whether it's you know st- reducing stress you know, these sort of lifestyle changes, you know, that is also, um, you know, something that we see quite a bit of, I don't, I can't really put a number though, because everybody's so different and everybody seems to be on kind of, you know, we're not, they're not categorical, they're more continuous. And so you see some people, like I see people in my private practice who have had traumas and, uh, but they also might have a more uh, complex psychiatric picture where they might have some underlying psychosis and Mm -hmm. so teasing apart you know sort of the trauma from the underlying psychosis you know you can you can work on the trauma but you you really are just managing those more chronic you know mental health issues through medications through lifestyle through you know just uh kind of you know how you how you process your stress and the kind of support you get in your life and all of that so i would say there are we're seeing people across the board, and I, I'm, but I'm sorry, I can't give you really a good breakdown.
0: No, that's that's a great answer. I appreciate you going there with me. I do want to um, shift gears just a little bit. There, there's a concept that I I know is very near and dear to you, and I believe it's a central theme in your in your newest book. I want to talk about the concept of uh, post-traumatic growth which is a term, admittedly, I was not familiar with until very recently. And I'm wondering if you could walk me through exactly how you define that and how someone can implement that in their lives when facing something like bereaving a suicide loss.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I experienced post-traumatic growth but didn't realize it uh, pretty quickly after uh, my husband's death. Uh, it was such a lonely experience that I It was one of those sink or swim experiences where I either was going to be completely crushed and devastated um, or I was going to, in some way, figure out a way to live. And so I did that. And what I did not realize at the time is that that was that's definitely a hallmark of post-traumatic growth. And so Richard Tedeschi and Lawrence Calhoun, who coined the phrase post-traumatic growth. Sometime in the mid 90s, uh, uh and the 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 phrase or the 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 definition is something like positive psychological changes that occur as a result of a struggle with you know a traumatic life event or uh, some sort of shattering uh, event in your life. Um, this was part of sort of the um, emergence of positive psychology. you know positive psychology is a you know in psychology we we sort of started in the early part of our, uh, professional, uh, you know, uh, um, early part of our profession, really looking at how we can exploit strengths to to sort of make people better at what they do. And then World War II came along, and we became very focused on psychopathology. And then in the mid '90s, it seems like you know Martin Seligman and others really began looking at sort of you know how can we exploit strengths, how can we how can we look at more positive emotions and help improve people's lives through focusing on those. And so. Post traumatic growth is really part of that overall movement. And, and the idea is that there are, um, we have a measurement tool called the post traumatic growth inventory. It's been revised recently. So we have a newer post traumatic growth inventory. Um, but the idea is that you have an overall scale score for it, and then you have five dimensions, uh, five domains. So you're, you're, you might be grow- you might possibly be growing in five different ways. And those include um, relating to others differently uh new possibilities for your life new avenues either for volunteering or like in my case a new vocation um personal strength um uh sort of sort of you know uh not 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 religiosity but sort of your spiritual life changes and that doesn't necessarily mean you become more religious although in my case i would i probably did but you could be definitely more more spiritual and then the last one is appreciation for life knowing how fragile life is probably as a result of your experience of loss you are mindful that every day is a gift and so those are typically the five dimensions where people grow and um i discovered this i mean just my own experience but at the time i didn't realize it until i got into graduate school many years later and kind of fell in love with positive psychology and post-traumatic growth And began reading, you know, the works of Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. You know, he developed logotherapy and writes about his experience of surviving the Holocaust. Um, But then also this whole idea that life is not about happiness, but it's about meaning and purpose. And so how we have these awful experiences that might deprive us of some apparent happiness. But actually, when we reconceptualize that the fact that life is really not about happiness, it's about meaning and purpose and that we derive actually a lot of happiness and joy and other things for meaning and purpose in our life. Um, those all resonated with me. Those ideas resonated with me. I would have to say once I went to graduate school and began studying suicide um, and brought this bereavement experience with me, although I was, you know, I was researching a suicide intervention and becoming trained in CAMS, I still always held that experience of being suicide bereaved I mean that was how I got into this field I would never my eyes would never have been open to the problem of suicide to the pain of suicide had it not been for my own loss and my husband's death so it was hard to extract those two and so when it came time for me to do my dissertation I was talking with Dr. Jobs about this and I, uh, I have to tell you, Rob, I had kind of an interesting epiphany. It was a strange bunch of emotions. Uh, we were talking about my dissertation and he, and he said, um, I said, you know, I think I'm going to do a dissertation on CAMS, something CAMS related. And he goes, you know, Melinda, you're, you've been teaching classes here at Catholic University on positive psychology and post-traumatic growth. He said, you're so in love with that topic. Uh, And he said, you're suicide bereaved. Have you thought about doing something on those two topics? And I remember, Rob, being immediately repulsed by that idea. Wow. Wow. Feeling like, ugh, because I was a researcher now. I was a suicide researcher now. And then I felt enormous shame. I mean, like this happened almost like within seconds. I felt enormous shame because I realized I had internalized the stigma around suicide. Mm -hmm. And then and then I thought, who knows more about post-traumatic growth after suicide bereavement than I do? And I thought, you know what? Uh, This is a phenomenal idea. And it made me think very differently about my experience of loss. And I thought, you know, the very least I could do is study it and see what comes up from it. And then perhaps if something does come from it, I find I have some findings that are interesting that this might give people who are just like me, who have had this experience of loss, maybe some hope that while this is a devastating, traumatic experience of loss, there might be there might be um, changes that are created that they could then apprehend as growth as I had. And so that's what I did. That's exactly what happened. And so my dissertation study was my first study of post-traumatic growth. I picked um, suicide-bereaved parents, and I began asking questions. I mean, it was through a a website, a portal that I had. I was asking uh, questions of parents around the world. And so I had just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of parents that participated in my study. But I realized almost right away that the preponderance of all of these people that I was uh, serving were not answering the most important questions about post-traumatic growth. They're ask, answering all the other questions. And I realized, I, you know, this is what, how research works that I was asking the question in a very insensitive way. I was asking the question, um, what kind of growth came from your loss? And that's not how it works. The idea is there are changes that are created within us as a result of these traumatic experiences. And it's from those changes. That we then realize growth, and that's that's really what happened to me. So I learned a big I learned a big lesson in this, and I went back and collected more data, changed the way I worded some of my questions, and then got a really good sample. And I could just continued to do post traumatic growth research among a broad range of tra- of, of suicide loss survivors. Um, in my research, you know, after uh, when I did my postdoc at the University of Kentucky, and then and now at Eastern Kentucky University. Uh, and I've joined forces with one of my um, my colleagues, Dr. Jerry Palmer, um, to do this work. And uh, it also so happens that Dr. Palmer is my husband. <laughs> so I got married again. I'm getting emotional again, Rob. You're bringing it out of me. But um, <laughs> it's kind of, again, a beautiful story, both personal and professional, how um, these things just keep giving in ways that we would never have expected.
0: Wow, that's incredible. I have have chills from you sharing that. It's it's really amazing to hear how that's all just kind of fallen into place for you from your lived experience um, or lived expertise, if you will, from your loss, um, coupled up with the research that you've done and how that has just put you on the path (laughs) that you're on is really incredible to hear. I have just yeah. a quick curiosity question and then a question specifically on on that purpose that you found. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned the the inventory tool yeah. around post-traumatic growth. Is that something that can be self-assessed, uh, taken by someone at home, for example, or is that meant to be implemented by a clinician?
1: You know, I, I think if you have a clinician who understands post-traumatic growth and understands facilitating post-traumatic growth, you know, that you're probably going to get more benefit. But I, you know, it's something you can just Google it, post-traumatic growth inventory. Um, I think uh, maybe the American Psychological Association or uh, some other organization has had it online where they'll score it for you even. Um, so just, you know, you can access it. It's it's for everybody. It's um, uh, Dr. Tedeschi, who still is doing this work, he is now an emeritus professor Uh, And uh, he's uh, now working with an organization called the Boulder Crest uh, Foundation, and they are a nonprofit and they do a lot of work with um, first responders and veterans. They're actually putting a lot of these principles into practice by creating um, retreat places, places where first responders and veterans go to actually Kind of explore their their own post traumatic growth in the aftermath of whether it's their service or whether you know we all know that first responders are exposed to a, a lot of trauma, and so he's actually working in this in the sort of the nonprofit realm now, but still very engaged in research, and uh, I think you can just find this online and take it if you want the post traumatic growth inventory, um, or if you if you know of a clinician who understands post traumatic growth, that certainly it's a very useful tool in therapy.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Sure. I, I do want to talk about some of the work that you've done specifically with the veteran population. But first, I want to I pull on something that you've shared, which seems to be a common thread in some of the folks that I've met with, which is the ability, whether intentional or not, to find mm-hmm. purpose and direction from a suicide loss. And uh, I'm wondering if you could share for for folks out there who are listening to this that maybe feel they're struggling with that. They're uh, maybe in the immediate wake of uh, bereaving a suicide loss. Um, it still feels kind of senseless and tragic. Do you have any advice for how someone could turn the corner and be able to find purpose from maybe specifically a suicide loss, but really any, any tragic thing that we could go through in life?
1: Yeah. I mean, Rob, it's kind of where I you know started this, this whole interview, talking about being very intentional about taking care of yourself. And I think healing, uh, doing some healing work early. And what I mean by healing work is I don't mean getting real active and, you know, get into therapy necessarily and do, you know, uh, but just being with your loss and taking care of yourself. You know, like I said earlier, if it's sleep, if it's eating, if it's exercise, maybe it's going back to school, maybe it's reading. I think therapy is definitely something. If, if you have a therapist, who understands suicide. Problem is, is that a lot of therapists don't understand suicide. And so it can be more harmful and more invalidating if you're with a therapist who doesn't understand. You know, I've I've heard, heard a lot of horror stories of people who have gone to therapists who have, you know, after a couple of sessions have said, you're so fixated on your son's death. You know, you need to stop that. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> Um, my therapist actually when Connor died, uh, I, I had this experience myself. She just didn't understand it. She was a cognitive behavioral therapist, excellent um uh CBTer who helped me with the depression uh before Connor died. You know, I had I had I had struggled with clinical depression and she was an excellent therapist. But when Connor died and I went to see her a couple of days after he killed himself, actually, she said um, the first thing she said to me was, Melinda, no one promised you a rose garden. And I remember thinking, okay um, trying, <laughs> trying to reframe this is oh, not yeah. helpful. You, you got to be compassionate. You got to be empathic. You got to you got to sit with this enormous grief and distress and and get out of your orientation, but a, and a lot of therapists don't know that if they've not had this experience of loss themselves, or they haven't had a lot of experience with it, and so I think that kind of therapist is not what you want. But somebody who who is maybe recommended to you by other suicide loss survivors or other tra- trauma loss, you know, trauma survivors, and I and I think it's sitting and allowing things to naturally emerge. You know, we use the metaphor, uh, Rabbi Dan and I use the metaphor uh, in our in our recent book, uh, Wisdom on the Path to Post-Traumatic Growth. We, we use the metaphor of the garden, you know, tending the garden. Um, and it's very much uh, tending our own garden and observing and watching what emerges. It might be getting involved in suicide prevention. It might be, you know, um, starting a suicide support group. It might be going back to school like I did, you know, years later and getting a PhD in something or an MSW or whatever it is, you know. Um, but it also might be something else. You know, it might be realizing you have a talent as a musician or as a painter um, or as a chef, cook, you know, or it might be just, you know, any number of things. Um, my very dear friend, uh, Kristen Spexarth, she uh, has a book. Called Passing Reflections: Surviving Suicide Loss Through Mindfulness, um, and she's got a great website, Passing Reflections. I think it's PassingReflections.com. Uh, just excellent. She was a professional gardener, um, and she was a long-term. She was a Buddhist practitioner when her son Colby, over twenty years ago, died by suicide, and she was also was a poet. So she wrote, kept journals. She wrote poetry. She was gardened and then she was a mindfulness practitioner through her Buddhist practice. And when he died, that's all she had. That's all she had. And so she had to tend to her wounds and people were very invalidating, didn't understand, avoided her kind of like my experience of loss as well, avoided, invalidated, um, didn't know how to deal with it. So they just didn't say anything. Um, And so she really had to, to sit with her loss using what she had, which was gardening, which was mindfulness and which was poetry. So she wrote she wrote some books of poetry around this and she began publishing these books of poetry. And But she had a lot of very important things to say about her early experience of losing Colby and how shattering it was, but how it changed who she was in such a profound way. Her experience uh, uh, with emotions, with just life, with everything was so different that she articulates the fact that she's not certain she would have changed it. And that's a pretty profound thing to say uh, when a mother has lost their, their child, you know, and I I think that's emblematic of post-traumatic growth and oftentimes what you can do. So she wrote this book, but she still is very much, she's a mindfulness practitioner. She's my mindfulness teacher. And she teaches a lot of mindfulness to suicide bereaved people. She does a lot of that kind of thing. So I think there's a broad range of things that people can do with their losses. It might be suicide related. It might not be.
0: Yeah, that's that's a fantastic answer. And uh, I really hate to hear about the experience that you had in therapy after Connor's death. Um, I had an experience that I've actually come to really appreciate. Um, a week yeah. after my dad died, I, I went to therapy just started seeing therapists at the time. It was maybe our third or fourth session together. And I came in and sat down and he said, well, how, how's everything going? And I said, uh, well, my dad killed himself. And and there was what felt like about 15 minutes of silence. And he said, I have to be honest. I have no idea how to, how to respond to this. He's like, I'm in over my head with this. And I think it, you should find someone who knows how to help you. Cool. <laughs> and that's that's what I did. And it probably took a lot of strength for him to admit that in that moment. And at the time, I was maybe a little off-put by it. I, you know, I was there seeking help, but the fact that he was so open about not being able to provide it, um, I think saved maybe some grief along the way.
1: Yeah. Well, he was an ethical therapist and he recognized this was outside of his competency, which is what we're trained to do. The problem is, how do you get confident <laughs> like if you haven't had this experience of loss and you haven't worked on yourself? I mean, I could not work with suicide loss survivors had I not worked on myself and continue to work on myself and my own traumatic experiences, not just Connor's death, but my own childhood trauma, you know? And, and so I continue to work on that. And I, and re- but I also now know that I'm, I'm at a place where I'm able to help other people um, and, and have, been that way for a while and i'm training other clinicians to be i I also do teach a grief and bereavement class during the summer that really helps um you know my doc students also upper level undergraduates at the university understand you know various kinds of grief experiences but then also how do you work with people who are grieving you know from a variety of losses and um so I, I, I think we have to, again, we have to be more explicit about clinical training, helping clinicians, you know, if you've not had this experience of loss, you know, you don't have to understand how awful it is to have lost, um, you know, like have a stillborn child or to what it's like to have cancer or what it's like to have depression, you don't have to have actually had depression or cancer or lost a child, you know, to, to help individuals clinically, but you have to have some training around that. And we're just not, we haven't trained people to understand this as a trauma because we really haven't understood it as a trauma until fairly recently. And I want to say something about that as well. You know, the science around suicide is so new that we're not we're not just understanding, you know, how do we conceptualize suicide and how do we treat it, how we manage it. But then when people die, you know, what are the consequences? And I, and I think, you know, your therapist was, like I said, so ethical and honest, but we have, we've really not underappreciated what exposure and impact does. And I was really, again, another one of those things where I could not have planned it, um, in my postdoc, I worked with Dr. Julie Serrell at the University of Kentucky. She is a clinical psychologist. She's a professor in the College of Social Work at the University of Kentucky. And she's really been a pioneer in understanding uh, what suicide exposure and impact does. And she and I was part of, the treat, uh, part of the research team that discovered this, that for every person who dies by suicide, there are on average about 135 people that are exposed to it. So that can be anybody. I mean, it could be like your classmate, you know, in college or high school or somebody you are on a soccer team with, or somebody was your next door neighbor, somebody you just kind of knew sort of, you know, superficially or somebody that you knew, you knew, you know, on a deeper level. And it's this perception of closeness that really predicts impact. So just because you're somebody's father or sibling, if you're not close it may not have the kind of impact that it would be for somebody who felt really close to that person. If that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. And so
1: again, it's on, it's on a continuum, this, this suicide um, survivorship, but for for people who feel close to the individual who died, who have a perception of closeness, they have much higher levels, um, statistically significant levels of depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation and suicide attempt. So now we know that actually suicide exposure and impact can be an independent risk factor for suicide itself. We certainly know that the impact is very harmful, uh, but we haven't known that until very, very recently. And so I think the important thing about that is we have to be able to translate that into clinical practice, helping clinicians understand uh, that they need to be looking out for these potential outcomes from suicide exposure and impact.
0: I just wanna take a look and I wanna be mindful of of your time. Mm -hmm. There are a few other things I was hoping to touch on with you. One of them being some of the work that you've done specifically around uh, the the veteran community. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could share some of that with us. Um, It's something we also talked about with Dr. O'Connor and some of the work that he's done, but definitely curious and looking to understand better uh, maybe some of the unique or specific risk factors that veterans face. And maybe any nuances in uh, treatment that is found to be effective with veterans.
1: Yeah, you know, um, I've worked, I've had the honor of working in four VAs. Um, I have um, treated um, a lot of veterans for post-traumatic stress disorder. And of course, you know, there are some individuals, you know, who will get suicidal when they have post-traumatic stress disorder. Some people don't. I mean, you know, we oftentimes have this sort of misapprehension that, you know, a mental health disorder will necessarily signal you have to have that in order to be suicidal. That's actually not true. And we know that in our research at Eastern Kentucky University, that there are people who are suicidal that don't meet, you know, criteria for any mental health disorder. I think veterans are, they're unique in that um, they are very, when they're on board with treatment, they're on board. You know, there's some of the best uh, patients I've ever had uh, in terms of um, for me as a clinician feeling like I'm helping them because they, you know, they are very committed to the goal, which is, you know, usually having symptom reduction, living a better life, having a more meaningful, you know, richer life. And I, that's really incredible. Um, I, I can speak broadly. Uh, I think Dr. O'Connor has done more research in the VA system. He certainly has done CAMS research in the VA system. Um, mine has been more of a, a broad experience uh, in doing research. I did work for two years on uh, with Dr. Julie Serrell at the University of Kentucky on the Military Suicide Bereavement Study. And one of the things that I really appreciated and enjoyed in working on that study is that you know, there are, is a lot of, um, there's so much, um, you know, resilience and so many strengths that these individuals bring, you know, to their service, but then they, they learn skills, you know, in the military. But I also think like everybody else, there are, there are, um, wounds, um, that, you know, that their clinicians maybe weren't able to, to treat or to necessarily help because, um, they're, they're part of these kind of ambiguous losses, you know, that we talk about in the literature. You know, um, this idea that a battle buddy could die by suicide, you know, while you're serving together or would be, you know, blown up by an IED, you know, right next to you. Why him and not me? You know, all of these these things, These, uh, you know, I think about some um, military veterans who were reserve folk who were called up and served and had to be in situations where you know they had to make decisions very quickly about you know do i allow this child that has explosives strapped to it to come into our you know to our area where we're living or do i do i take you know take the this threat out and that mm-hmm. becomes an awful decision the things that they face are some of the most uh, horrific traumatic things i've ever heard people having to live through and they live with that every day and i just have such respect um and so i think this idea of post-traumatic growth actually uh, it's something that speaks to a lot of veterans and a lot of veteran military families you know i've surveyed um these military family members who lo- lost active duty soldiers um to to suicide and other causes and and i think I think this idea of being strong at the broken places, you know, uh, this uh, famous book um, Max Cleland wrote, you know, a U.S. senator, you know, who uh, was was uh, uh, paraplegic, you know, all of these people who who have been through these experiences recognize that, you know, while they're not going to be able to sort of return to that pre-injury person that they were, there is something incredibly strong about them in the aftermath of these traumatic experiences. And they appreciate that in a really beautiful way. And so I, I can't really give you a, a real uh, sciencey answer. I can give you more of a qualitative broad brushstrokes answer to that question.
0: No, that was, that was a great answer. And, and I really appreciate it and appreciate the work that, that you've done in that space. There's just one more question that I have, and then I want to give you an opportunity to share anything that you have that we didn't touch on. So understanding the work specifically that you're doing and training clinicians and training graduate students um, around how to assess and intervene and treat suicidal patients as well as those who are bereaving a suicide loss. I think there's just some really awesome things going on in that space, the work that you're doing, the work that Dr. Jack Jordan is doing and training clinicians, um, Mm -hmm. some really some things that really inspire hope in me. I'm wondering Mm -hmm. how we get from the point that it is now of some individuals doing some really great work and helping to train the next wave of clinicians. How do we get from that to where I hope we're heading, which is this training is commonplace in our curriculum. And beyond just training clinicians, we are training people like myself. We are training regular ordinary people, how to recognize, deal with um, and live with both feeling suicidal intensity and losing a loved one to suicide. How do do we bridge that gap? Gosh,
1: that's a great question (laughs) and a big one. I mean, from my perspective, in terms of changing clinical behavior, it goes back to uh, training programs. And I'm not quite certain, I probably should know, um, how do we change the standards around uh, curricula? So graduate curricula, whether it's in psychology or whether it's in social work or mental health counseling or, you know, even medical schools. I mean, I I treat a lot of uh, people who are in the sort of the medical field, general medical field. And I've had a number of suicidal medical students in my practice who did not understand. They had not one ounce of bookwork or training to understand what was happening to them. Um, and so I think we just need to do a better job at making sure that the standards um, are, you know, include, incorporate, Sort of this new science around suicide. How do you understand somebody becomes suicidal? How do you intervene? How do you manage? And then understanding that exposure to um, suicide, uh, being bereaved or losing a loved one is a trauma like, you know, a being a combat veteran, you know, who's in war and has had, you know, multiple traumatic uh, experiences while in combat or a rape. Or some other, you know, a flood, some sort of natural disaster. Um, I think we have to, you know, that has to be interjected into training. Um, But I think really it comes down to changing culture when it comes to how we think about uh, suicide. How do we treat suicidal people? How do we talk about it? I mean, this issue of nomenclature is so important. You know, we don't say the word committed suicide anymore because finally we got. You know those of us who are suicide bereaved got it through the heads of a lot of a lot of researchers a lot of people sort of in the field who who did not understand just how uh, what a mischaracterization that was of what our loved one did or people who are suicidal are doing they're not committing a crime they're not committing a sin and that's what that word suggests Uh, but then also what do we call things you know and the whole idea of you know suicide gesture or, you know, a, I heard somebody, a reporter say the other day, something about a successful suicide attempt. And I'm like, oh my gosh, please, you know, we've got so much education uh, around nomenclature. And so I just think it's a cultural shift. You know, it's kind of how, you know, uh, when I think about my, my service in public health many, many years ago, you know, 30 plus years ago, really, um, and how we were talking about, you know, HIV and AIDS or cancer, you know, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, we've changed culture around that. Uh, you know, we've got football players who are, who are wearing pink sneakers, you know, in honor of the Susan G Komen foundation. You know, we've got, you know, five K's we've got, we've got medication now that keep people you know, alive even, and they're living with HIV and AIDS. You know, I remember when, you know, it was a death sentence. And so I think we just have to continue to push the envelope on changing culture across the board, funding, Uh, Talking about it, what you're doing, Rob, is really important to having these public conversations and then continuing to, you know, push organizations like, I guess, the American Psychological Association and other organizations that are setting the standards for, you know, training curriculum.
0: Beautifully said. Beautifully said. There's one question I have that I like to wrap with, but first I'd like to give you an opportunity. If there's anything you'd like to share either related to your newest book um, or anything that we didn't touch on that maybe you feel called to share about right now. Is there anything?
1: Yeah. Well, it's interesting you use the term called, (laughs) because I think one of the things we haven't really talked about is this issue of faith. You know, uh, I, I was a new Catholic when my husband killed himself and i I had to kind of rediscover um, those those uh, you know why i why I became a Catholic, why I became uh, more engaged in organized religion um over the years. and I've been working with faith communities now for a, a while uh, at the intersection of faith and suicide prevention. And communities of faith are, are even though they're losing market share. And certainly the pandemic has not been kind to faith communities in terms of churches closing, you know, every across the board, people becoming more, you know, spiritual and not really religious. But I still believe that they are powerful suicide prevention partners. And we have to do a better job in this country of not only, again, training seminarians because seminarians, again, don't get training, although most suicidal people working or are in not working necessarily attending churches or ch- tending temples or, or mosques or whatever they feel more comfortable talking to a clergy member about their suicidal ideation than they do somebody like me and so i think we have to do a better job also training these helpers just general helpers in our society whether you're a mental or medical professional or whether you're a member of a faith community or or lay people people working you know gatekeepers we have to do a better job of gatekeeper training so i i think it's a it's not just training for professionals. It's training for everybody, particularly communities of faith, because I think, you know, I'm not trying to proselytize or recruit people to become Catholic. But I think I think the Catholic Church and other churches, Protestant, Jewish, uh, uh, Muslim, I think we all have uh, part of our a service to humanity is to also be a safe harbor for people who are suffering. And that would include suicidal people, but it would also include people who have had the worst happen. And uh, when you, when you lose a loved one to suicide, oftentimes there will be a funeral and that is the perfect place to uh, begin to uh, aid the people who are suffering, but also talk about uh, how they died in a way that's different than how other people, how other clergy have talked about it or, preaching individuals into hell or whatever awful thing that they've done in the past. I think that's also a perfect place to start talking about the suicide and then the pain of losing that loved one to suicide.
0: I'm so so glad you brought that up. It's, it's something I was aware of that you did and I I view you as being at the forefront of trying to bridge that gap, uh, which I appreciate so much because it's something that is a component in every suicide loss. I know when my dad died and I've shared this before on the show, um, I was so nervous about how the, the the mass was going to go. I had no idea what was going to be said, how the church was going to view his suicide. And uh, when, when Monsignor got up there, the first thing he said was, let us remember that Rob is not defined by his final action. And I just like, uh, it just felt like a weight was lifted off my shoulders. And it's really amazing to see that shift happening in our communities of faith. And I know it doesn't happen by accident. And just want to express that I'm really grateful that you're leading the forefront on, on doing Mm -hmm. that work and bridging that gap.
1: Thank you so much, Rob. I really appreciate you saying that.
0: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So just to kind of round things out, there's a question I like to ask and it's going to take us back to uh, speaking about Connor. We talked Mm -hmm. a little bit about your experience in losing him and maybe some of the Mm -hmm. factors that might've led to him feeling like he had no other decisions. Mm -hmm. What I'd like to leave our listeners with uh something maybe on a lighter note. I'm wondering if there's anything you want people to remember about Connor oh, Re- Remember gosh. about him as a person,
1: yeah, oh, I'm gonna start crying again, Rob <laughs> um you know i I think the fact that he was a gentle intellectual who cared deeply about his family loved his mother and uh, his sisters, Aoife and Serica very, very much. They're still alive and I'm, I'm very much in contact with them. Um, And, you know, I'm, I'm deeply grateful that, um, you know, he loved me because um, he healed me in the short time we were together. He healed me in a, in a profound way. He created a wound, of course, but he also was healing to me. And I'm grateful for that love, so grateful. Thank you.
0: Thank you for sharing that with me. And thank you for being here today. Thank you for the work that you do. I feel like I could keep going. And thank you for giving me some homework to do. You've referenced (laughs) some like really incredible people in our conversation today. And I'm going to go back and and take some notes because I think they're people that I definitely would like to try to sync up with. Um, But again, thank you for for being here, Melinda, and I'm looking forward to chatting with you again soon.
1: Thank you so much, Rob.
0: All righty. Take care.
1: Bye-bye. Bye
0: now.